you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Fried chicken. Should you use a fork or your fingers? When does a candidate weigh in right away on breaking news? Does Medicare for all really mean the end of the private insurance biz? And why ethanol doesn't necessarily have to disappear under the Democrats' Green New Deal. Democrat Kirsten Gillibrand, an attorney like her parents, she worked on Hillary Clinton's New York U.S. Senate campaign. She served one term in the U.S. House. In 2009, she replaced Clinton in the U.S. Senate. Then on January 15, 2019, she announced she's exploring a run for president. She joins us on this episode of The Price of Politics. Presidential candidates and food. Let's be honest. Do we really want to see video of politicians eating? Do we want to see video of just about anyone eating? Ask any politician who ate a corn dog at the Iowa State Fair in front of cameras. Did staff really appreciate the images afterwards? Doubtful. But Gillibrand held a campaign event with business leaders in Columbia, South Carolina in early February. It was at Kiki's Chicken and Waffles, which is apparently a must-stop there. And afterwards, she got ridiculed because she asked a question while she's there at the table. She had asked one of the hosts, should she eat her fried chicken with a fork or with her fingers? That's where we start our conversation. I want to first talk about fried chicken. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Help us understand, what is it like to be a candidate? So you do this event in South Carolina, and people make fun of you because you totally. ask whether to eat fried chicken with a fork or your hand. I just didn't want to be impolite. Um, I was eat So I had sweet potatoes on my plate, yams, and then I had some collard greens that were delicious, and then I had the chicken. And so I started eating the sweet potatoes and the collard greens, and then I was like, mm, it's not going to work. And so I said, do you mind if I pick up the chicken because I was for some reason I started before everybody else and so she's like of course you can I was like okay because in New York we've got chicken wings so like of course you eat chicken wings with a finger there's no other way to do it no other way to do it and this looked sort of the same so I was like is it okay and she's like yeah but yeah snarky but folks it, yeah doesn't it so how do you how do you deal with that though as you go as you go forward through this campaign do you just tune that stuff out do you have to acknowledge it how do, how do you handle that part of it I, I'm just a mom and I do my best and I'm sure I'll make mistakes and have certain faux pas but the truth is I'm just myself and I was really grateful to be in that meeting. We had a bunch of business leaders, um, uh, a lot of our uh, black business leaders from Iowa, excuse me, from South Carolina who wanted to talk about their priorities and um, it was a great opportunity for me to listen and the lady who owned that restaurant was fabulous. Like she put not only the meal together, but all the people together to come and talk to them about their priorities with me. So I was delighted to be there and the food was amazing. So I got to have a great lunch and meet great people. The media constantly follow these presidential candidates. And in this 24-7 news cycle, the stories break especially fast, but they are often incomplete stories. I talked to Gillibrand about two stories in particular. First, there's the case of Jesse Smollett. 
He's that African-American actor on the TV show Empire. He had initially claimed that two men attacked him in Chicago and they used racist and homophobic taunts. Democrats, including Gillibrand, almost immediately tweeted out praise for Smollett. She had tweeted this, quote, This is a sickening and outrageous attack. It's the latest of too many hate crimes against LGBTQ people and people of color. We are all responsible for condemning this behavior and every person who enables or normalizes it. Praying for Jesse and his family, end quote. Now, as we learned later, there would be major changes to this story. Chicago police said Smollett masterminded all of this ruse, and he might have been unhappy with how much money he was making on his TV show. Okay, so that's one thing. Then the other story here, what happened with Virginia's governor, Ralph Northam? There were these old college yearbook photos that surfaced contain a picture of a man in blackface. Now, Northam, when confronted with this, initially apologized for the picture, but then a couple of days later, he tried to claim that he wasn't actually in that picture. I was appalled that they appeared on my page, but I believe then and now that I am not either of the people in that photo. Obviously, skepticism ensued. Nearly every prominent Democrat said he should resign. However, he refused to do that. So I asked Gillibrand on how she handles media questions looking for comment on high-profile developing stories like those two. Things come at you boom, 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 nonstop, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you decide whether to weigh in or say, hey, I need a minute? Sometimes you need more information. I think on this most recent example, we need more information. Nobody knows what happened now. Uh, everything's a question. So uh, we'll have to wait and see and see what the facts really are before um, I could actually form an opinion about what's going on. Uh, I think the governor's case was similar. We just needed a little more information. But when he said um, he was wrong to put that photo on his page and that he was sorry for appearing in that photo, there wasn't a question. A few days later, he then says, oh, but I might not have been in that photo. That made no sense to me. But what was wrong about the photo is it was just so racist. It was just, it was hateful. Um, it, it, there was no narrative beyond what it was. And I can't imagine putting that on a yearbook page and thinking it was okay to do that, even then. And so I felt I had to call on his resignation because it just was such a degree of, of a hateful picture that is so divisive and so harmful. Um, it just was that upsetting. What do you make about the conservatives who are pointing out how you and some others tweeted right away about Jesse Smollett's situation, and then as it's changed, haven't really gone back there and started tweeting about? Well, we don't know the facts yet. And when we do know the facts, I'll, I certainly will be asked for my opinion again, and I will offer it if it's helpful to the conversation. Um, but, you know, we are called to be leaders, and sometimes we are asked, uh, is this okay, is this right? And my history is I stand up for what's right, uh, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. Um, and, you know, certainly an example is the Al Franken situation. Um, that was not easy to do. Uh, we, we all miss Senator Franken. He was a colleague that we really cherished. Um, but the truth of that incident was there were eight credible allegations, and they were corroborated by the press, some of them in real time when they happened, uh, and two of them were since he was senator. Uh, and the fact that the last one was a congressional staffer, um, we knew a lot about that, that, that particular allegation, 
um, because of the proximity. And I had a ch choice. I could either stay silent or I could speak my mind uh, about whether it was okay. Um, and I also am a mom of two boys. I have Henry, who's 10. I have Theo, who's 15. And the conversations we were having at home about that very issue were upsetting. I mean, Theo said to me, Mom, why are you being so tough on Senator Franken? And I had to be really clear with him that it's not okay, Theo. You cannot grope a woman anywhere on her body without her consent. You cannot forcibly kiss a woman ever without her consent. And that it wasn't okay for Senator Franken, and it's not okay for you. And so I got to the point uh, with eight allegations that I had to say it's not okay. Um, and, and then whatever choice Senator Franken made were his. If he wanted to stick it out and wait six months for his ethics investigation, that was his choice. If he wanted to sue each woman, that's his choice. But my choice was not to continue to carry his water with my silence and defend him with my silence. After that happened, you also, in an interview, talked about those allegations from years ago back with former, mm. former President Bill Clinton. Mm. And some of the Democrats were saying, whoa, what is she doing here? Mm. Which saying that you know, maybe he couldn't get elected in this day and age because mm. of allegations like that. What, what has it been like since you decided to express your honest opinion at the time, mm. right? And then kind of get beat up by activists about why she's saying this? What's that like to go well, through? Well, it's not about any one industry and it's certainly not about any one person. Um, but it's important to talk about it today because we have President Trump in the White House who has more than a dozen of credible allegations of sexual assault against him. And what President Trump has tried to do is silence all of us. Um, when I came out and said President Trump should resign because of these sexual, sexual assault allegations that are credible, that have been corroborated, that have been documented by the press, investigated, um, not only should he resign for that, but he's trying to silence the women, the, the, the dozens of women that have come forward. And when I called him out on it, he tried to silence me uh, by saying some very inappropriate appropriate things. And it was just a sexist smear intending to silence me, those women, and the millions of women that have been marching across Iowa and marching across the United States since he became the president. And so sometimes you do have to speak truth, and it's hard. And one of the reasons why I'm running for president is I think I have the courage, I think I have the conviction, I think I have the fearless determination to call out what's wrong, what it needs to be called out, but also to do the hard work of taking on the powerful interests that control everything in Washington. If you want health care as a right, not a privilege, you got to be able to take on the insurance companies. If you want lower-cost drugs, you got to be able to take on the pharmaceutical industry, if you want to actually end gun violence in our community, you got to call out the NRA for their greed and their corruption. Um, they care more about gun sales than people, more about profits than people. They, they would rather sell a gun to someone with grave mental illness or a criminal record or on the terror watch list or a teenager in Walmart than they do about keeping us safe. And that's why they don't support universal background checks. So part of the reason why I'm running is I think I'm bold enough and brave enough to truly take on what's wrong in Washington, what's wrong with this president who's divided us and, and spewed hate and division everywhere he goes and to restore what's been lost, that integrity, that, that moral fabric that's being torn apart by his division. Um, and I think I have the, the courage to do it. We're talking to you on the same day that Senator Bernie Sanders said that he's running again. Yeah. And one of the things that he said during the interview with John Dickerson on CBS was, mm -hmm. hey, some of the things you all are talking about now, yeah. Medicare for all, those kind of things, I started it. Um, isn't he right? And shouldn't he just continue to lead this movement? 
So interesting, let's just take one example, Medicare for All. And I think Bernie's terrific, and he's been doing great advocacy for this country for a very long time and believes in it, believes deeply in his ideas. Um, but Medicare for All, I actually ran on that issue in 2005 when I was a first-time House candidate in a two-to-one Republican district in upstate New York, a pretty red area. Um, and the reason why I ran on that in 2005 for the 2006 election was because I traveled around the district and I talked to people. I asked them, you know, what's, what are your biggest challenges? And back then, cost of health care was one of the biggest challenges for almost every family. And so I came up with this idea because it was, you know, certainly being talked about in the grassroots. How would you feel about a not-for-profit public option? How would you feel about being able to buy into Medicare at a price you could afford? Let's say 4 or 5% of income overwhelmingly in the two to one Republican district, they said, yeah, that would be great because they know how the economy works. They know that competition results in lower prices. So if you have a not-for-profit provider offering healthcare for the cost of healthcare as percentage of income versus an industry that is the middleman that just wants to guarantee corporate profits, pay their CEO, CEO tens of millions of dollars uh, and have shareholder value, they care more about their share price than the people they're supposed to be serving, that, that they're, they're going to have a tough time competing. And let them compete. Let them bring their prices down. And if they don't, people are overwhelmingly going to choose Medicare for all. So I thought a not-for-profit public option would work. Um, so when Senator Sanders introduced his bill, I asked, could I please write the transition? Because this is the part that really appeals to the red and purple places in my state, letting people have the choice to buy in. And that creates competition. It will disrupt the insurance industry uh, because they are driven by profits, not people. And it will disrupt some of the greed that's in the healthcare system today. And it just allows us to get to single payer. It allows you to actually get for to Medicare for all. And long term, my vision for this is let's like make it, let's make it an earned benefit, just like Social Security. So you buy in across your lifetime, whether you're working full time, part time, big companies, small companies, you're actually buying in as a earned benefit, as a right. And then you'd have uh, preventive care for all Americans. You called it a disruption. So we're sitting in Des Moines as we talk to you yeah. here. There are thousands of people who work in the health insurance business in our state. So what does it mean for those folks if we would go to this Medicare for All? Yeah, so uh, the whole point is to make sure we're funding our health care system more. So instead of taking a big layer of fat out of health care by giving it to the for-profit insurers, you're just going to give it straight to the hospitals, the, the uh, practitioners, the doctors, the nurses, so they can uh, be paid and be paid for their care. The other thing you'll need to do, and for those in health care know this, Today, Medicare reimbursement rates aren't covering the actual cost of what they're delivering. Medicaid doesn't either. And there's usually two or three prices for the same procedure in a hospital. One for a Medicaid reimbursement, one for a Medicare reimbursement, and one for somebody who walks in off the street. And none of those price tags is the actual cost. So if you're going to build on Medicare, the first thing you should do is create transparency in pricing and make sure we actually know the cost of that x-ray. It's not $50, it's not $100, it's not $5,000. It might be something in between. It might be $500. And then make sure when you're buying into Medicare and all this, these funds are coming in that the reimbursement rate that Medicare pays to that hospital actually reflects cost. That's how you build a viable system long term. Okay, but for those people, their industry disappears, right? Because I've heard different in people explain this. In insurance, if they're yes. health, 
it will be disrupted over time because unless they want to compete, which they might, or offer products that aren't about getting access to basic affordable care. So in other countries that create health care as a right, not a privilege, insurance still exists, but it's for bells and whistles. It might be for the faceless you really want to get. It might be for the plastic surgery you're desperate to have. That's not actually delivering health care. That's delivering services that are important to you uniquely. If you want to pay an insurer to, to go ahead, but you're going to lose your money. Um, it would be better just to actually pay for the service you're getting directly to the doctor or to the facility that you want to buy that service from. Um, I think the middleman structure is just a failing structure. I don't think you can get to universal coverage on a for-profit model. Um, and I don't think if you believe, as I do, that healthcare is a right and not a privilege, then having a for-profit middleman, a for-profit industry in the middle of it, is just creating extra cost. It doesn't make sense, to be honest. We talk about Green New Deal, and I feel like a lot of people have different interpretations about this, what, what this could maybe look like one day. Yeah. Uh, let's talk specifically about ethanol, which I'm sure comes up for you as you travel sure. this state here. So if the big picture goal is to eliminate fossil fuels in a decade, yeah. then should we look at it that ethanol is good for now, but if we can achieve this goal of a decade from now, we've weaned off and those folks move into something or else, or how do you look at it? Or just keep um, uh, refining it, actually. So we, I know over the last 10 years, we've made great strides in how clean ethanol can be. And so there's no reason why we shouldn't continue to innovate in that field. Biofuels will be part of the renewable future. Whether how we make ethanol today is going to be the exact formula we're going to have in 10 years, why would you presuppose we couldn't invent our way out of this challenge? Like I believe that the entrepreneurial spirit of Americans um, is so significant. It's what's driven our economy since our founding. We are the greatest inventors in the world. And I think the Green New Deal is an opportunity to, to, to create a call to action to America to say, let's, you know, just like John F. Kennedy says, let's put a man on the moon in the next 10 years, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Let's do the same thing. Let's do a call to action to the American people and say, let's become a green economy in the next 10 years, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Because truly, if you do create this mission, this, this overarching mission, it does become a measure of your excellence, of your ingenuity, of your entrepreneurialism, your ability to invent and innovate. Um, we were the creators of wind and solar, but unfortunately because Congress dithers and never works well, they couldn't agree on a tax credit year after year after year. That market went to China. So now China is manufacturing solar and wind. We should be manufacturing solar and wind here. And what happens is when you are manufacturing and your manufacturers in Iowa know this, you are in a much better position to innovate. You are the ones who create the next generation innovation. And so we need to bring that manufacturing back to the U.S., incentivize um, our uh, producers in places that have coal. You know, why not build the next wind turbine manufacturing right there, right alongside, and then spend the money to reinvest in our workers so they get the training they need to move into another manufacturing industry, take all their skills that they already have and, and amplify them to be able to be useful in a green economy. You know, instead of um, worried about, you know, just doing oil drilling and using fossil fuels, why not take those places, go straight to Texas and put your next um, solar panel manufacturer there and go into the technical schools and say, we're going to teach you STEM 
education, science, technology, engineering, and math so that you have the skills you need to do it. I know it works. So in upstate New York, we have one of our SUNY systems is a green energy school. And so they teach these young people how to build solar panels and wind turbines, but also how to build LEED certified housing, you know, energy efficient windows, um, all the big things and small ball things that create the entire panoply of green energy. These kids, and when I toured, they told me that 98% of the graduating seniors, this is in upstate New York, have three or more job offers before graduation. So I know this is a jobs agenda, but it's more than a jobs agenda. So you got the jobs agenda, which is all about the green energies and green economies. Second, a bipartisan idea that we've been working on for decades, infrastructure. President Trump promised he'd build infrastructure, unwilling to build infrastructure. Actually deliver infrastructure. I know in Iowa, you guys would benefit from rail lines. I know you would benefit from some mass transit. I know you would benefit from um, better roads, better sewer systems, cleaner water. You've got real challenges. And so for all those farmers that are being asked uh, to deal with nitrates, why not invest in our farmers and give them the tools? We do it. Through, I'm on the Ag Committee. I've been on the Ag Committee for 12 years. Um, we have um, grant money that is invested for um, farmers to use to be able to be stewards of the environment. Um, we have uh, ability to reinvest in our economies that work to make sure the outcome is favorable for everybody. So you could do that. And so if you're investing in infrastructure, you can invest in everything to make us renewable, to make us energy efficient, and then to focus on clean air and clean water. Now, clean air and clean water is something every state needs. It's important for human health. We have huge challenges in New York. We have the largest Superfund site in the history of the world, not the world, the largest Superfund site in the history of our state. Um, it's the Hudson River, and it's got PCBs in it. But we also have PFOA from manufacturers. We have PFAS, which is another tough chemical that are on our military bases. We have some in Iowa too. So we got to clean up our water and that's part of the Green New Deal. So the, the, the uh, three overarching principles of green energy and jobs, um, infrastructure and mass transit and efficiency, and then clean air and clean water and f cleaning up brownfields, huge mission. Why not make it a call to action to the entire country? But I would add one more thing. I'm sorry it's taking so long. It's all right. So the one more thing is I would add, I'd put a price on carbon. And I would do this because it's how the market works. If you say to a polluter, you know, I understand it's your business and you need to pollute, you know, you can keep polluting, but you're going to have to pay more because you're the ones that's responsible for the asthma rates in our cities. You're the one who's responsible for some pollution here and there, and it's a huge healthcare burden. You need to pay. But if you're that great entrepreneur and innovator and scientist who just figured it all out, you're getting a huge tax benefit. That's how you drive innovation couple of things to wrap up here. If you're wondering what Trump said to Gillibrand back then, well, I found this tweet. It is dated December 12th, 2017. Trump, as president, had tweeted, quote, lightweight Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, a total flunky for Chuck Schumer and someone who would come to my office, then he has in quotes here, begging for campaign contributions not so long ago, then in parentheses he has, and would do anything for them, is now in the ring fighting against Trump. Very disloyal to Bill and crooked. Assuming he's talking about Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton here. All right, you also may have heard her use the word SUNY. That stands for State University of New York. It is made up of 64 institutions, community colleges, colleges, universities. This whole system educates more than 600,000 students 
in New York. One final thing. She says wind turbines in Iowa. We have it both ways here. Wind turbines. Other people say wind turbine. Potato. Potato. Talk to you next time here on The Price of Politics, etc. 